for Father's Day, I thought I'd bring some stuff, some little toys here with me. Anybody know what, uh, what these are right here? Yeah, what, what are they? Legos. Legos, yeah. They're the ones you can't choke on, though. <laughs> Duplos. Any Duplos fans in the house? Anybody own some, some Duplos? Well, our family, we, we do enjoy Duplos. And probably the thing my oldest of my three kids, Dallas, likes to do, and maybe if you're a kid, you like to do this too. Anybody like building really tall towers? with Duplos, trying to make them stand, yeah. We like doing that too. Dallas is a pretty good, he's five, he's a pretty good tower builder, but he has two big obstacles that stand in the way of his tower building endeavors. Here's obstacle number one, his younger brother, Clive. <laughs> now, while sweet and kind, let me tell you, he is every bit as ornery and troublemaking and mischievous as his constantly instigating father. I know I look like a saint, but trust me, there's a lot of sanctification still needed in this guy's life, and I believe Clive is going to help me reap what I sowed in all those destructive middle school years. That's obstacle number one. He loves to knock down tall towers. Obstacle number two is his little sister, Avi. Now, she looks sweet and innocent, even godly standing under the words of our mission statement, practicing the way of Jesus together. But this curly-haired little kid, while cute, is a fiery ball of Duplo mass destruction. She is eager to knock down the most impressive of towers. She is a big building brother's worst nightmare. So given all this relentless adversity that Dallas faces in his tower-building endeavors, how do you think he's response? Well, definitely with screaming and shouting and frustration. But when he realizes that's not going to work, he started building a different kind of tower. <laughs> now, it's not as tall, not as impressive, but boy, this thing is thick. This is dense. You try and knock this over, it's probably going to actually hurt you more than it's going to hurt the Duplos. It is strong. It is sturdy. It can withstand Clives and Avies and all kinds of other forces. And I bring these kind of two towers here today to ask you, what kind of life are you building? Maybe this tall tower is kind of that life that just climbs up the, the ladder fast and high, successful on the outward, outside looking in. It looks great, but as soon as there's challenges, trials, calamities, it easily becomes vulnerable and can be susceptible to crumbling, being knocked down. We're rebuilding this kind of life. Might not look as fancy, might not be as impressive on the outside, but it's unbreakable, unshakable, almost able to withstand just about anything. What kind of life are you building? What kind of life would God invite you to build? What would a God-built life look like? What kind of life might you join God in building that would be the kind of life that God blesses? Is your life God built or man-made. 
Well, these are the questions I'd like for us to explore today as we continue our series, Praying the Psalms. And if you're just joining with us, all summer we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. They talk about the prayers and the poems and the songs that were said and sung and recited while people made pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year as commanded by God. These pilgrim psalms help invite us to be on the journey of drawing closer to God and being involved in his work in the world. And today's psalm touches three of the greatest human preoccupations I think that we all have. Just think about some of the things you think about when your mind is free to roam and wonder. Think about what you think about when you're worried. It probably has something to do with your work or career. It probably has something to do with your family or your home life. And chances are you're worrying about work or career or family or home life because deep down you care a lot about finding security. And that's what Psalm 127 is all about. How can we build the kind of work life, home lives that are God-built that can bring us the kind of security, the kind of stability that can withstand even the biggest trials that we face in life? So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Psalm 127. Some of you might be thinking, we're a little bit out of order here. We are. We're not going to glaze over Psalm 126. Pastor Matt Beatty will preach that next week. And we chose this one because its themes are so resonant here, especially for Father's Day. So as we hear God's Word, would you please stand with me wherever you are? And this is a song of ascents. And as part of the subscript, small print here, it says, Of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the guard keeps watch in vain. It is in vain that you rise early and go to bed late, eating eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives sleep to his beloved. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. These are God's very words. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, since this text is all about building, and we want to talk about building the right kind of life, I'll try and kind of unpack this psalm Thinking uh, with the analogy of a house, here's our kind of foundation, which is what verse 1 is all about. Verse 2 will kind of give us the structure, kind of the exterior of the house. And then verses 3 through 5, we'll look at the interior of this house. And some of you might be thinking, did he go to school for architecture? I mean, he's so good at drawing. This, believe it or not, is just a God-given skill. So we'll try and fill in the making of what a God-built house, a God-built life will look like. So let's start with the foundation. And the foundation of a God-built life really looks at verse 1. And this is a verse I hope you might think about memorizing. So let's just read this out loud together, even if you're at home. Let's say this out loud. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the guard keeps watch in vain. Unless the Lord, unless the Lord does it. I believe this teaches a very important principle that if God's not in it, it's really not worthwhile. And if God's not in it, I don't want to be a part of it. 
One of the ways we can know for sure God is not in whatever your endeavor that you're pursuing is, is if it blatantly in some way causes you to compromise your convictions or compromise what the truth of God's word says. God will never call you to do something that contradicts what his word tells us, which means we need to know it and study it and live it as best as we can. Fundamental to this, though, I think is another principle, and it's this, that good things pursued for the wrong reasons can lead to unsatisfying results. Good things, if they're pursued for the wrong reasons, they can lead to unsatisfying results. They might look good on the front end, but unless the Lord's in it, it's probably in vain. Think about your own life. Like a lot of us might be builders or people who watch over and, and serve our communities in law enforcement or military, and we're grateful for your service. But you might just want to fill in the blank of, unless the Lord does this, then I might be laboring in vain. Unless the Lord helps preach the sermon, the preacher preaches in vain. Unless the Lord builds the church, the congregation is building in vain. But a lot of times, we might want to build toward a good purpose but we might want to do so for the wrong reason. And so this psalm invites us to really examine deeply our motivations, the heart behind why we do what we do. Let me illustrate. Kind of a passage of the Bible that seems to overshadow this whole psalm. It's a story found early in the pages of the story of Scripture, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. The heart of the story, it's captured here in verse 4. Here's what it says. Then the people said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So what's the good thing that they might be pursuing and trying to build this tower? Shout it out. Maybe put it on the chat if you're watching online. What's the good thing that they want? Community. Community, yeah. They want to reign together. They don't want to be scattered, right? But what might be the bad reason for them trying to build this building? Pride, I heard it. Yeah, make a name for themselves. They don't just want to do it to give glory to God, which is what our purpose in life is really all about. They want to do it to make a name for themselves. Nobody does that in our world today, though, do they? I mean, social media, platform, I mean, none of that is about building a name for yourself. Good things for the wrong, done for the wrong reasons can lead to unsatisfying results. It might look really good at first, but at the end of the day, God's not in it. It's not worthwhile. It might be a really impressive company that's being built, a really great academic career that's being built, but if it's God's not in it, is it really worthwhile? I believe that if it's not God built, it's just Babel. If it's not God built, God inspired, God led, God initiated, congruent with what God would have us to do, it might satisfy you temporarily, but long term, it's just going to end up being nothing but Babel, like Legos, Duplos, knocked everywhere. One of the things that 
praying the Psalms invites us to do isn't just to pray the words to God. It also invites us to open our lives up to God, to allow God to search us. One of the best ways we can pray the Psalms is with a sense of openness, that God might want to redirect, reshape our lives in some way, shape, or form. So I invite you right now just to pray this psalm, maybe just to be still where you are, Maybe just even open up your hands as just a posture saying, God, I'm open to hearing. Might there be some endeavor in your life that's being done for the wrong reason, the wrong motivation, maybe to make a name for yourself or for pleasure or power, security that you create for yourself rather than security that's found in God? Let's take just a few moments to be silent and say, God, investigate my life. Is there something that I'm pursuing that you're not blessing, that you're not behind? Is there a good thing that I am pursuing, God, that is keeping me from a God thing? Are there ways, God, that I'm trying to make something happen on my own, apart from you? Give us, God, I pray, a sense of openness to being changeable and transformed. Amen. So what's the foundation of a God-built house? I would say it's dependent on God, not reliant on self. It's dependence. Dependence on God, not self-reliance. We want to be God-fashioned, not man-made. God-built, not self-made. That's the foundation of a God-built house. And if it's not a God-built life, it's just Babel. It's just Babel. Let's talk about the structure now, verse 2. What's the structure or framework for a well-built life or house that God would bless? Verse 2 says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved. Let's do a little pop quiz. See how well you can connect these ancient words of Scripture to maybe some of the present struggles that people like you and me might deal with. What struggle or maybe what even sin do you think we as many as Americans deal with that this verse is addressing head on? Think related to work. Anyone want to help me out? What's the struggle that this verse, rising early, going to bed late, pushing and pushing and pushing, what might be the struggle that a lot of us of Americans especially fall prey to? Sleeplessness? I think I heard it. Yep, workaholism is what I'm kind of thinking about. We, we get up early. We try and make it happen, and we stay up late, and we think, if I can just be successful, then I will be somebody. Then I will matter. It keeps me restless. I'm just going through my mind again and again and again. We can do that with, with work in a lot of ways. Now, let me just pause and just kind of speak for a moment and say many of us, don't have jobs where we're able to work regular hours and we aren't masters of kind of our, our schedule and other people dictate 
that for us. And so I don't think, I'm not trying to heap any condemnation on anybody with a job like that. But many of us actually do have a relative amount of freedom and control over how we spend our time. And many of us allow our schedules to be taken to the max. It might be workaholism, but that might also translate when we think about our home life and what we do for our children into programming our lives, our schedules, our activities, that they are just taken to the max and we are just constantly restless going to and from and we're so busy, but we might be missing out on the presence of God right in our midst each and every day. We work to the bone, whether that's for employment or maybe to try and set up our children or the next generation for success. But they might be outwardly successful, but do they have the right kind of character? Are we making space for them to have the right kind of relationship with God, which matters most? What's a remedy for workaholism or this perpetual drive for more and more and more? I think the key is hidden in one word here in this psalm, beloved, beloved. Earlier I mentioned that this was a psalm of Solomon, which is kind of unusual. He doesn't write a lot of these, the Proverbs, other things were attributed to him, the third king of Israel. But let's try and look at the context a little bit about what might be the reason this is inserted here. If we look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 to 25, we see this idea of belovedness showing up here. Here's the story. Then David consoled his wife Bathsheba and went to her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he named him Solomon. The Lord loved him and sent a message by the prophet Nathan, so he named him Jedidiah because of the Lord. So King David, we read a psalm of his just two weeks ago, and, and that psalm, he's going to be the new king, and the Philistines are trying to attack him, and David asks, Lord, should I rise up and try and fight the Philistines? Will you give me victory? And, and God says, yes, and David describes how God bursts forth to give them that great victory, and when David was inquiring of the Lord what he should do before he does it, he was leading a God-built life, but now after God blesses him richly, David starts to depart and starts to do things his own way, ignoring, neglecting God and his word. And his life starts to crumble. Two big sins, adultery, murder. But even in the midst of those colossal failures in David's life, God still wants to work out a redemptive purpose. He blesses this unlikely couple with this child Solomon, who will be the next king. And Solomon, through the prophet David, is given this name, Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. Now Solomon, like his father, has a pretty tragic descent away from the Lord in his life, but it starts out really well. And it makes me wonder if Solomon crafted this psalm early on in his life. And early on in his life, or his, his, his reign as king, maybe he remembered his true identity, which kept him from idolatry. And his true identity was he was beloved of the Lord. And because he was beloved of the Lord, he did not need to fall into the idolatry of workaholism. An idol is just a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. That's what a lot of us do with work, parenting, whatever it might be. But when we remember that we are God's beloved we don't have to have an 
a sense of anxiety about working to the bone, feeling like we always have to do more and more and more and more because we know in God we're already enough. We're already loved. I'm going to share with you what I think is one of the most important dynamics in the Christian spiritual life for how we translate kind of a Sunday faith to our Monday work. We serve from love, not for love. We serve from love, not for it. In other words, God already loves us in an unbelievable way. He loves us so much, he sent his son Jesus to die for us, to live for us, to rise from the grave. That's how much he loves us. But a lot of us struggle to receive that love. We'd rather earn it. We'd rather be loved because of how successful we are, by how big our family is, by how large our profiles and platforms are and how many people like what we post on social media. We'd rather earn love, but I believe the most missing fundamental link of the Christian life is the ability to slow down, to receive the grace and the gift of God's love for you and for me, not because of anything we do, but because of who he is, who he has made us, and how much he loves you and you and you and you. You don't have to push yourself endlessly because you already have everything you need because you are God's beloved daughter. You are God's beloved son. And that's what is a gift that God wants to give to us, I believe, today. So let's pray this psalm for a moment. I just want to invite you just to be still right where you are. And just imagine, let's go back to that story I prayed earlier of the prodigal son with the father, sees his wayward son coming home, and he just looks at him with nothing but love and joy. He throws a party. He looks at him lovingly. And a lot of us have wounds in our lives, maybe from our own fathers who did not extend this kind of love to us. But no matter how good or bad of a father you had, no, God looks lovingly at you right now. He wants to heal those wounds. So may you just ask him and say to him right now, Lord, I want to receive your love for me. I am your beloved. You are God's beloved. So free us from this anxious toil, God, and help us to work and serve from a place of being so loved by you. Amen. So a God-built house is founded on dependence on God, not reliance on self. It's structured around our belovedness, that we are loved enormously by God. What might be the inside of a God-built house? Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of a womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, in some ways, this is a little bit of a hard verse to read, to be quite honest. I'm blessed to have two sons, but can I go to my little girl who's practicing the way of Jesus together and say, hey, I'm more blessed because of your older brothers than you? 
How do you think she would respond to that? Not so well, right? <laughs> is a person who is blessed to be a parent more blessed than those who don't have children? Well, think about who was the greatest person who ever lived, the most fully alive human to ever walk the face of the earth. That's Jesus. He did not have children of his own. So that kind of, kind of kills the case that you're more blessed if you're a parent than if you're not because Jesus didn't have kids. So no one here is a second-class person or Christian. So what's going on in these verses? Back in seminary, I had to study Hebrew, and most of the time it didn't do me a lot of good, but studying the original language actually makes some sense of this psalm. There's a little wordplay, kind of almost like a dad joke at play here. There's a word for, for builders, which is bonim in Hebrew, and there's a word for sons, which is banim in Hebrew. And so, builders and sons, ba, bonim, banim, is kind of a way of organizing this psalm, much like I'm trying to organize this sermon with this structure. It kind of ties it together so it's a little bit more memorable. That's one aspect of what is going on here. But beyond that, what it's trying to connect are the things that we preoccupy ourselves with, our working lives and our home lives. And our working lives and our home lives, we often strive for them so seriously because we look to them to find the deeper need, kind of the need beneath the need, the thing beneath the thing, which is security. And where is ultimate security found? Is it found in how successful we can be? Is it found in how big our families were? Now, back in those days, yeah, if you had more sons in this ancient kind of primitive culture, that was a sign of greater security. But great working lives and big families are not enough to cover up the shame that this psalmist is worried about in verse 5. How can we really find true security? I believe every text of Scripture is ultimately fulfilled in and through Christ, best understood through the lens of Jesus. And when we think about some of Jesus' teachings, he talks about a couple of different houses that were being built to. Remember this story? What might this house represent in Jesus' teachings? House built on sand. What might this one represent? House built on the rock. Yeah. Let me read that story for those of you who might not be familiar. It's Matthew 7. Woo! All right. Try not to break this thing the whole time. Just like walking very gingerly up here. Be a mess. But here is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. The little siblings tried to topple that tower, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great resounding crash." So how can you build a life on the rock? You take Jesus' words, and you put them into practice. You don't just want to know them, you want to do them. This is the passage that really forms our mission statement here at Crossway, to practice the way of Jesus together. We 
are audacious enough to believe that through the help of the Holy Spirit, we can do more than just know what this book says. We can actually live it out and appropriate it in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we want to dare to be a community who believes we can live this out for such a time as this by the grace of God. And we believe as we live that out and make that our aim, not the perfection of obedience, but the pursuit of obedience that we'll be people whose houses are sturdy, built on the rock. We'll have God-built lives. We will not have lives that can crumble just like the Tower of Babel. And so the inside of a God-built house is all about obedience, the pursuit of doing what Jesus said. And an interior is marked by security that comes from obedience, not by shame. So how's your house? How's your life? Is it God-built or is it more self-made? Is this foundation dependence? Is it structure, the belovedness that God wants to give to each of us? Is the heartbeat of your life what drives you obeying Jesus, knowing that's where real security, a rock-founded house is found? A lot of us might actually say, yeah. But my life, while dependent on God, while I know I'm loved by God, while I'm trying to obey Him, it still isn't turning out the way that I would have hoped. It doesn't seem like God's delivering on His promise. Let me wrap up by highlighting one word that's used three times in this psalm that we haven't really touched on yet. Vain. Vain. Not vain like, hey, I'm going to take all these selfies of myself and look at me. Vain as an empty, worthless, meaningless, doesn't turn out the way that I want. Maybe you've had a conversation that was really tough and you hoped somebody would change and they didn't want anything to do with it and you just kind of wondered, why did I waste my time? That kind of vainness. Well, throughout this message, I've looked at two towers and that might be triggering something for the Lord of the, the Rings fans in the house. Two towers written by J.R.R. Tolkien. And I want to tell a little bit about his story. Tolkien labored and labored and labored to try and craft a history, a language that would really reflect the, the depth needed to create a real Middle Earth world. And yet, he sometimes felt like it was never going to be finished. Then World War II came, and it really seemed to sideline his work. And he started to feel like he was living in despair because this thing he had labored for decades over might turn out and result to be almost nothing. He goes to sleep one night, and it kind of brings that, I think, he was a believer, to the Lord in prayer, and he wakes up with, I believe, a story that was given to him by God. It's a short story called Leaf by Niggle. And he uses the story to console himself, but it's a story to help us know that our good endeavors, when done for the Lord and not for ourselves, they're not in vain. Niggle was an artist, and he was given this incredible vision of this amazing, beautiful tree. As he tries to draw it and draw it and draw it, the best he can ever do is just make one leaf of the tree. Now, he was haunted by the fear of death, and he was worried that he might die and never be able to finish his tree. And for circumstances I'm not going to get into today, he does go on to that afterlife. Tree unfinished, work left uncompleted. But while he's headed to the afterlife, he finds himself riding on this train. And as he's riding along on this train, he looks out the window and he sees something that absolutely astonishes him. 
in 3D right before him is that tree that he had envisioned but could never quite draw. He was blown away. And it helped him realize that his good endeavors in this world, his desire to do what God would want him to do, even if they don't come to fruition in this life, this life is not the only life. There is a life beyond this. Our good endeavors now, they can have a resounding impact into eternity. St. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, Beloved, there's that word again, my beloved brothers and sisters. From love, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in your labor or work or service for the Lord, knowing that your labor and service in the Lord is not in vain. In this world, our work, our efforts, our family life, it feels like it's filled with thorns and thistles. But when we continue to found our lives on dependence on God, We work from a place of knowing just how loved by God we are. And we make the driving heartbeat of our lives obedience. It's marked by security, not shame. God will help us build a life, a legacy, relationship with him and others that will last, even if now in this world it might feel empty or fruitless or in vain. So my brothers and sisters, may you take heart. Unless the Lord builds the house, we do it in vain. But anything we do for the Lord, even if it doesn't look outwardly successful now, I believe in God's economy will have a lasting, reverberating impact now and all throughout eternity. And I hope for each and every one of us, we would live that kind of God-built life. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day that you have made. Thank you for this word that reminds us that unless, God, you are in it, it's not going to last. It's not going to work. And so, Lord, may we be like that house built on the rock. May we not depend on ourselves, our own ingenuity, our own strength. May we depend wholly on you. Maybe right now you just need to ask God for forgiveness for the ways you've tried to do it on your own. God, we repent of that. Forgive us for the ways, God, we try and earn love that you have already given to us freely, abundantly. And so, Lord, by your grace, may we lead lives that are God-built that will be far more than just Babel. May we have lives that are blessed by you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask all these things.